The subject matter of this podcast will address difficult topics, multiple forms of violence, and identity-based discrimination and harassment. We acknowledge that this content may be difficult and have listed specific content warnings in each episode description to help create a positive, safe experience for all listeners. In this country, 31 million crimes, 31 million crimes are reported every year. That is one every second. Out of that, every 24 minutes, there is a murder. Every five minutes, there is a rape. Every two to five minutes, there is a sexual assault. Every nine seconds in this country, a woman is assaulted by someone who told her that he loved her, by someone who told her it was her fault, by someone who tries to tell the rest of us it's none of our business. And I am proud to stand here today with each of you to call that perpetrator a liar. Welcome to the podcast on crimes against women. I'm Maria McMullen. Our guest today is Kelsey McKay, a nationally recognized expert on strangulation and developer of a critical protocol for strangulation and domestic violence response and treatment. A former prosecutor from Travis County, Texas, Kelsey founded McKay Training and Consulting to collaborate, investigate, treat, and prosecute strangulation and intimate partner cases. Conducting hundreds of workshops on strangulation, she has come to train the likes of the U.S. Army and presented at South by Southwest. Her protocol, the Asphyxiation Assessment, is transforming the role of first responders in cases of crimes against women. Kelsey will also be featured in the Conference on Crimes Against Women 2020 web series. Be sure to stay tuned at the end of our conversation for more information about that and important facts about today's topic. Today, we tackle the subject of strangulation, what it is, what it is not, and best practices in the fields of response, investigation, and prosecution. Kelsey, welcome to the show. Thank you, Marie. I'm excited to be here. I typically start the podcast with uh, kind of a summary of the topic that's up for discussion, but with strangulation being such a broad term and likewise an emerging field, I would like to defer to you the expert, to provide our listeners with the answer to just what is strangulation. You know, everyone from law enforcement and victims to your average layperson will usually refer to it as choking or getting choked out, at least in the sense that we're talking about it. But strangulation is actually quite different. Choking is when something gets lodged in your airway. So when I was five years old and a caramel got stuck in my throat, that was choking. So a piece of food, something that prevents you from breathing. But when we're talking about strangulation in the criminal sense, we're talking about your air or blood flow being constricted or impeded when someone puts external pressure on your neck or throat. And when that happens, it prevents oxygen from reaching the brain or other internal organs. You know, when we talk about strangulation as it relates to the criminal justice system and crime and abuse and homicide, we're really talking about a really specific type of violence, and it's distinctive from other forms of violence. And the umbrella term is really asphyxiation, and that's any act that can deprive the body of oxygen. And when that happens, it interrupts the normal process by which our body is fed and nourished and functions normally. So while asphyxiation includes strangulation, it is a much broader term, but specifically when it comes to strangulation, we're talking about that external pressure on the neck. Of course, asphyxiation can include other things like suffocation and aquatic violence and even things like someone sitting on top of a person's chest. But I think more importantly than just understanding what acts 
or asphyxiation or strangulation. It's about talking about how it's a different type of violence. It's not like your traditional violence where you might have blunt force trauma or a gunshot wound where you have a bloody scene and obvious signs of injury. It's much different. It's much more challenging because it often lacks that obvious sign of trauma. And what I see in law enforcement is that we very much tend to rely on what we see to determine the seriousness and sometimes even the existence of an assault. And so when these crimes like strangulation, like drowning, like asphyxiation are much less visible, it is so easy for it to be susceptible to being misunderstood or minimized or overlooked entirely which certainly is the case that we see in both homicides and assaults. They tend to get missed. You know, the reality of not just the criminal justice system, but people in general is it is so much easier to believe what we see rather than just what we hear about. And physical injuries create that comfort and confidence in the observer, whether it's the police officer or your your viewer of a TV show or the prosecutor, it makes it so much easier for them to have confidence that the case actually happened. When you throw in the complexity of a non-visible crime, it's really hard to understand for your viewers. That makes sense. When most people hear strangulation, they think immediately that someone dies. Or they think strangulation as a, you know, the immediate cause of death. But that's not always the case. Can you clarify that for us? Yeah, sure. You know, strangulation and the concept of it always results in death is something I think that comes from what we see on TV, possibly the correlation between serial killers and their use of strangulation. So it's very much tied to death, murder, serial killings. And usually when you see it on TV or the movies, rightfully so, the person does die from it. Certainly with serial killers and homicides, that's the case. But there's absolutely a huge prevalence of cases where the person doesn't die, but strangulation is used within that assault. The bottom line is strangulation can be all the way on one end. Asphyxiation can result in death, but it very much is a scale. And whether death results is often a matter of the length of time the person applies pressure. So obviously, touching someone's neck isn't going to result in a homicide if it's momentary necessarily. But as that pressure is placed on their neck longer and longer, different injuries will occur. And eventually, if that pressure is continued, death will result. The way the law tends to define it is a little bit different than medically. It doesn't require death. Obviously, if there is a death, it's a homicide case. But the way the law tends to define it across most states is that in some way, the person's normal blood or airflow was impeded. And so that can be momentarily, that can be for a period of seconds or minutes. Sometimes the person might lose consciousness and sometimes that that person might in fact die. But generally the cases we struggle with are those ones that don't result in death. There are a lot of long-term serious injuries that can result, a lot of medical conditions that can appear over time. What, what, are some, what are some of those medical conditions or injuries that could result? Yeah, so there's a scale and there's a variety, and certainly there's still a lot we don't know about. Sometimes they're as tame as the person is noticing um, some optic changes, some visual changes. Sometimes I got a call yesterday on a case where she was going in and out of consciousness even the next day. Some people develop seizure disorders. So a lot of neurological-based disorders, you also have things like strokes. Someone can, when pressure or trauma is placed on their neck, that can cause a carotid dissection. Over time, that can result in a stroke. 
there are a lot of long-term health consequences that we're still figuring out because as you can imagine, if someone is strangled and they survive and maybe they don't get the right type of medical care and years later they have a stroke, no one will necessarily look back to that non-fatal event and say, oh, that's probably what caused it. So there is a need to understand the medical consequences beyond what we understand now. And unfortunately, right now, the medical response to these cases isn't to the degree that we're going to start to catch all of those. Uh, one of the things that we can look to, though, of course, is like autopsies. So when we do have a homicide and the body is opened up and we can examine it, that helps give some insight into what some of those injuries are that could exist when someone continues to live. But usually a lot of the injuries are external. I'm sorry, a lot of the injuries are internal and a lot of law enforcement relies on what we see externally. So unfortunately, when we do that, we rely on the obvious external signs. We don't always pay attention to the things that are lying beneath the surface. In cases of rape, or domestic violence, say in the form of emotional abuse, there's a tendency to victim blame or not believe the victim. Do you find this is true in cases of strangulation where people just don't believe her that, sh that she's been strangled? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, Marie, there are multiple layers to this. And to really answer the question, I think the first step is just to go back a little bit. It goes to that lack of obvious, clear-cut external visible injuries. So, when those injuries are lacking on a victim, and especially in many of our strangulation cases where the perpetrator actually does have injuries. So when you think you're being murdered, you fight for your life. You claw at your neck, you claw at the perpetrator, you might bite the perpetrator. You're going to use whatever you have access to, to relieve that pressure from around your neck. And, you know, that often results in injuries on the suspect. So it's difficult for officers when they go to a crime scene and the only person with signs of injury is the suspect. It's difficult for them to understand who the perpetrator is and it confuses their ability to determine who the credible party is. But I do know that once officers have guidance on what to ask about, what to look for, they gain a lot more confidence in their investigation and they learn to look at things beyond just that visible injury. But quickly, if I can just say, going back to the visible injury, one of the scary things that I see a lot is not just us doubting victims or not believing victims, but a trend I've seen more recently over the last few years is actually arresting the victim. So again, when they go to that crime scene and in domestic violence, especially, you rarely have people who are telling the same story. It's pretty much the opposite story. And then the officer has to make that decision. Unfortunately, what I've seen more and more over the last few years is that the victim who calls to report a strangulation once officers respond, ends up actually getting arrested for an assault that night. Even a scarier version of this, um, unfortunately more common than you would think, is when law enforcement doesn't understand the seriousness of that strangulation and the victim has to retreat to something like homicide, so grabbing a gun and shooting the person, doing something to survive that situation, officers will respond and arrest her for homicide. Prosecutors will charge her and try her for homicide, not really understanding what that immediate threat was and how scary it was during the assault. And that's justified homicide. When you're being strangled, that's someone using deadly force on you. So you're absolutely justified in that homicide. But unfortunately, many officers and prosecutors don't see the use of strangulation in that clear cut way. 
So it's important for us to learn to identify these cases in all those different environments uh, so we can prevent homicides. There's some great work by Dr. Jackie Campbell. Her research shows that after one non-fatal strangulation that a victim is six times more likely to be murdered by their partner. So it's something that is predictive of eventual homicide. And it you know, makes complete sense because strangulation is not only a different variation of violence in that it's less visible, but it has psychological significance as well. It's an escalated type of both control and physical violence. So within that dynamic of an abuser asserting their power over a victim, when they start to lose that control, they escalate their tactics to more serious types of behavior. And that's instill a higher degree of fear and fear controls behavior. So what better tool than strangulation, making their victim feel what it's going to feel like to die is I had someone in my audience recently say, you got to give them a little taste of death. And in the end for domestic abusers, that's really the goal is to give them that taste of death and in turn control that victim. And if we want to prevent homicide, we have to catch these killers when they reveal themselves before they commit these homicides. And the way they do that is these non-fatal strangulation cases. Going back to your question about the lack of believing with victims, well, visible injury plays a very big role in that, in that there's not some obvious path for the officer to determine who the primary aggressor is when you look at that. We also have to look at the assault and the physical, not just the physical impact, but the trauma and fear it instills and how that changes how a survivor behaves. So ideally, if someone were assaulted, they would. And I think people assume that victims are able to clearly communicate that experience and advocate for themselves, you know, know what relevant evidence the officers need to hear about. But unfortunately, the opposite is true. And survivors balance long-term survival when they make these decisions to talk to law enforcement. So strangulation specifically can be quite disorienting and it can impact their ability to explain what happened. Whereas on the flip side of the coin, the abuser is very well versed and comes across as credible and does a much better job representing their interests better than a victim does. That's a great place for us to kind of segue into what you developed in the strangulation supplement, also known as the asphyxiation assessment. So some of the examples that you gave sounds like places where this could be implemented, but I want to back up a couple steps before we talk about that to ask really why was it necessary to develop the protocol and how does it work? How, are the, how is uh, law enforcement and others using it? Absolutely. So laws across the country have been being passed for well over a decade now. And I think all but two or three states now have non-fatal asphyxiation statutes in place. And those laws are very purposeful. The problem is, is that the laws are really only as good as we know how to use them. And so in 2009, when Texas passed our strangulation legislation, my job became to handle all of our domestic violence strangulation cases. And what I learned very quickly is that I was going to lose every single case because we just didn't have the evidence. Passing a law does not make people understand things that are complicated. It might give a platform to say, we need to invest in training, we need to invest in resources, or we need to develop protocols. But unfortunately, that isn't how it tends to work. A law passed, and then we all hope for the best. With strangulation, we were very lucky that we were able to get this grant where all I did was focus on these cases. And 
having had experience in domestic violence prior to this, I knew that one of the biggest challenges in these cases is that survivors were very rarely able to cooperate in the prosecution. So I knew that if I didn't get the evidence the night it happened, when patrol officers went out, I was never going to get this evidence. And that's a lesson I learned pretty quickly. I tried my first case and she had a bruising around her neck. And I remember going into that very confident and then coming out of it quite defeated when the jury found the perpetrator not guilty, despite the handprint on her neck. So I really recalibrated myself. And for the trial the following month, I looked back to the law, realized that visible injury isn't something that was required under the law and listened to the words of that jury, which was visible injury isn't an element. So I really shifted my focus to what the elements were, which were impeding the circulation of blood and air. Unfortunately, I had no idea what that meant. Other than asking a victim, could you breathe? I didn't really have the ability to flush out more information, but I got very lucky in that the following month I had a trial where the victim was cooperative. And we took a lot of time and talked about what her body felt like when she was being strangled. She had absolutely no visible injury from the strangulation. But by the end of that trial, we had 42 signs and symptoms of strangulation. And we were successful in that prosecution. He went to prison. And I remember the next day thinking, I need that evidence in every case. How do I get that evidence in every single case? And that led to what has been probably the last eight or nine years where I have sought to teach every police officer who goes to a crime scene what the evidence is that I need. And that turned into what we call the strangulation supplement. So the strangulation supplement was originally created for first responders to use when they respond to a strangulation scene. And it basically gives them a guide of what questions to ask. So as I mentioned, most officers will simply ask, could you breathe and look for visible injury? And those are very difficult cases to win. But the strangulation supplement has been adapted over the years, and it focuses on categories that help prove impeding the circulation of blood. It also looks to things like airflow. So not just asking, could you breathe, but also asking about how did your throat feel and assessing what the person's voice sounded like and if they had difficulty swallowing. And then with blood flow, what I find is officers have no idea how to ask about that. You know, you might be able to say, could you breathe, ma'am, could you breathe? But officers can't ask a victim at a crime scene, ma'am, was your blood circulating? And so they don't even know what that means. So what we've done is establish a protocol and a group of questions that can really help develop evidence in these cases. And those questions are based on conversations I've had with victims, research, training, and ask things like, did you have any changes in vision? And so obviously when oxygen can't get to the brain, it affects things like our optic nerve and our auditory nerve. And if we just tell officers or give them some guidance on what to ask, it yields a ton of really good information. And so when we have the evidence, we can win these cases. It's when all we have is the dependency on visible injury and the I couldn't breathe that we tend to fail in being successful with these cases. And in turn, what happens is we end up dropping cases, we end up not prosecuting cases, and then victims lose their faith in the system. And so it really has been created to assist law enforcement officers at the crime scene to develop their evidence. But over the last few years, what that has turned into is more than just first responders using it. We now have prosecutors who will use it when they're meeting with victims. Um, I had a call yesterday from an advocate at a shelter who is using it. 
Uh, it was a case that hadn't been reported, but the advocate was using it to help determine the evidence in the case to prepare for things like protective orders. And what it has done is resulted in not just better quality cases, but it's allowed officers to identify cases that we would have completely missed. So to those points, how widely is the protocol being used? Is it something that is in place in just parts of Texas? Is it across the country? Where are people using this? Yeah, so certainly having my had my career in living in Austin, Texas, Texas has been a lot of my focus, especially in those early years in Austin in particular. That's where we developed the strangulation supplement and we've really fine-tuned it over the years. But over the last three or four years, especially, the use of the strangulation supplement is all over the country. I'd say I have close to a thousand requests in the last two years. And as I mentioned, it's it's a living document. So it's something that as more people use it, we get more feedback and we can adjust it accordingly. We're working towards making sure that there's data driven behind it, that it's evidence-based, and that people are using it in its best capacity. Um, another thing that we started to do is use it not just with first responders in intimate partner violence, but forensic nurses are using it. It's being considered in sexual assault cases and human trafficking cases. We've adapted it to child abuse cases. It's one of those things that as you start doing a better job responding to this crime, it starts to reveal that this crime is occurring not just in domestic violence, but throughout crime in general. So we have one for CPS, forensic interviewers. I have partners and colleagues that have developed it for the more medical setting. So not just law enforcement and criminal justice, but for other settings as well. So I'm excited about where it's going and the interest that we've had, the number of requests that we've had, and the follow-up for training on how to use it. You mentioned evidence-based. Do you have some data that suggests how well or how frequently the protocol is being used right now? You know, I don't know how um, outside of some of the communities that we're tracking up until about a year and a half ago, I didn't, if someone emailed me for it, I would just send it out. Um, It's been over the last 18 months or two years that we've started to track who requests it. And then we're following up with those communities to get data. There are quite a few communities that different agencies are tracking. We have a lot of high risk teams that use it. So we're able to pull more and more data about the quality of the investigation One great example, though, so I worked with Houston, Texas. So one of our bigger jurisdictions, obviously, in Texas, almost 5 million people in their population. When we looked at the number of cases they were filing related to strangulation, they were filing under 500 cases a year. I knew just based on the population in Austin, which is almost a quarter of their size, we were filing almost twice that many. And so I knew that they were not identifying the appropriate amount of cases. So once we did a little bit of training, and in May, almost exactly two years ago, Harris County implemented the strangulation supplement community-wide. So they have about 86 law enforcement agencies, and the majority of them implemented the use of the strangulation supplement pretty much within the same quarter. And what we saw almost immediately was their 400 to 500 cases jumped closer to 3,000 annually. So it was an immediate impact. As soon as you give the tools to the officers, they start identifying it, they investigate it, and then in turn, prosecutors can hold these offenders accountable. So we know it's working, and it's working not just in the quality of cases, but it's working in increasing the quantity because we're doing a better job identifying them. Okay, let's talk about abusers who use strangulation for a minute. Are there certain types or profiles of perpetrators who who use strangulation? 
Absolutely. So I, I'm not a forensic psychologist. My background is as a prosecutor and as someone who has probably read more strangulation cases than most people out there. I've handled thousands and thousands of these cases and you really do start to notice patterns. And the patterns that I've seen separates these offenders into two general categories. So with domestic violence, for instance, many abusers are using strangulation for purposes of coercive control. So what coercive control means is I instill fear in you and that fear controls your behavior. So domestic violence is about obtaining and retaining this control over another human being. And if you think about it, most people aren't going to be told to do something they don't want to do unless there's some motivation to drive them to do it. And instilling fear in a human is a great way to control what they do. So, right, it might start with threats. It might start with isolation. It might start with emotional abuse. It might escalate to things like slapping. But in the end, when someone becomes desensitized to those types of tactics and threatens to leave or does something that the abuser doesn't want them to do, the abuser has to escalate the way they instill fear. So if slapping is no longer instilling that fear, they're going to escalate to different types of violence. This is where asphyxiation becomes a key piece of an abuser's handbook. So when you escalate to something like strangulation, now it's not just that hurt, I don't want that to happen to me. Now it's a, oh, he could kill me. And in fact, that's what that felt like. And I don't want him to kill me. So now I'm going to listen. So not only is it an assault in that it's physically dangerous and can have all those consequences be discussed, but it's psychological terror. And so that coercive control element is really important because that's often why abusers are doing it. Scott Hampton from Ending the Violence does a great job discussing the role of strangulation within intimate partner violence. And he talks about some other reasons abusers use it, like gaining access, discouraging reporting, silencing, and then obviously terminating. So we see abusers or perpetrators or predators also using strangulation as a method to kill an individual. And so in that respect, it really is to end their life. The other category that I see quite commonly, but I would say less discussed, is people using all forms of asphyxiation and particularly strangulation as a means to obtain sexual gratification. So most people are familiar with the use of rough sex and the use of strangulation and autoerotic asphyxiation. People will discuss that, but what people don't understand is that is not necessarily a consensual act. A lot of perpetrators will use strangulation as a way to get sexually gratified. So some of them are turned on by torture. And right, you don't torture someone by just calling them bad names. You torture them by placing them in a physical space where they think they're dying. And it's their response to that torture that turns on perpetrators. And so the sexual gratification aspect is something that we're not really talking about a lot. But it's something that absolutely exists in quite a prevalent way in our culture. I mean, just like pornography, for instance, the amount of strangulation asphyxiation that's occurring there really speaks to the idea that there's an audience for this. And if there's an audience for it in pornography, there are perpetrators out there using it. One of the places we really see it is with serial killers, for instance. You know, many serial killers have sexually motivated intentions behind the killings. And strangulation is something 
that provides, you know, not an immediate death, but a slow death and then a way for that perpetrator to enjoy that homicide. Some of them will sexually assault the person, but some of them are just sexually gratified. There's a serial killer recently, Samuel Little, who he would strangle them and then masturbate to it. So sexual gratification doesn't necessarily mean sexual assault. It's actually the strangulation that is tied to their gratification. And then finally, I see it with child abuse, for instance, I see it used for purposes of punishment. Um, Unfortunately, with potty training and um, when children are acting up, it is a really effective way to control that child. It scares them and instill fears in them. It might cause them to lose consciousness. So punishment, it's a little bit different, but it's certainly a dynamic that I'm seeing more and more as we train child abuse detectives and forensic interviewers to look for this within child abuse. So how did you come to specialize in strangulation? This is a little bit unusual. <laughs> Maria's like, I need to take a deep breath after the last <laughs> answer. <laughs> I know. It, it's a lot. You know, it's, it's a strange specialty. And I never set out to specialize in strangulation. I started doing domestic violence as a very young prosecutor, mostly because as a misdemeanor prosecutor, domestic violence is really the only violent crime you deal with. So otherwise you're doing marijuana cases or DWIs or low-level thefts. And, you know, I became a prosecutor to deal with these types of crimes. And so I started in domestic violence and then anyone who was experiencing domestic violence, that's where things were first identified with how we were missing strangulation. So just inherently in doing domestic violence, I became acquainted with these cases and uh, the cases would get filed and they would be challenging. And then the more I saw that challenge, the more I wanted to figure it out. So back in, I'd say 2005 is probably the first strangulation case that I tried well before we had a law. I would try them under different circumstances. And when I moved over to do felonies, I would handle these as aggravated assaults. I've had a variety of different cases, all the way from misdemeanors to capital murders that involve strangulations. And I was just always drawn to figuring out these cases. And as you can imagine, based on what I just discussed with sexual gratification, we have an opportunity to find someone who is sexually gratified by strangulation and put them in prison for a very long time. That's probably something that we want to learn how to do. So in my years of just prosecuting cases, when I would get cases like that, I would invest everything in winning them. I would invest everything in understanding them. I would invest in trying to help the survivor and understand the perpetrator and find a way to convince this jury to see who this person was, because I never wanted to be the prosecutor who wasn't successful. And as a result, somebody died. And with strangulation, unlike a lot of crimes, these are our killers. And so if we have an opportunity to identify them before they kill, that's an opportunity we should take advantage of. So in the years, I would handle a lot of non-fatal strangulation cases. And then I very randomly just started to figure out solutions to it. I would try different techniques. Sometimes I'd win, sometimes I'd lose, but I would always learn a lesson. And then I started to share those lessons with anyone who would listen. So I would train at our cadet academy. I would talk to the person on the plane next to me. I would speak with other prosecutors. I would speak with advocates. If I was, there was one time I was having a kidney stone and in an ambulance. And once they gave me the appropriate drug so I couldn't feel the pain, I started asking the paramedics if they'd had training on strangulation. (laughs) So just knowing... 
So you'll you'll ask anybody, is that right? Okay. I, I'll ask anyone and then I'll train them. And what we just started realizing is, you know, there's a solution to this problem. You know, there are a lot of problems we don't have solutions to. But what I find is if you educate practitioners about strangulation, we can solve this problem. And when it's one of those very strong predictors of homicide and lethality, and it's tied so closely to things like sexually motivated killings and serial killers and serial rapists, it's something we need to pay attention to. You know, not just when it becomes a homicide or a serial rape, we need to pay attention as these perpetrators are growing themselves. Even though domestic violence homicides, you know, the main percentage of those are not as a result of strangulation. We do know that most, almost half of domestic violence homicides, there was a strangulation leading up to that. What Dr. Campbell's work shows is that almost half of intimate partner homicides had a strangulation in the year leading up to that death. So again, if we can predict something, we can prevent something. And so, you know, I just kind of became this weird expert in a very specific thing, never intending for it to lead to this very specific career path. We're running out of time, so we need to just wrap up real quick. But tell us, I want to learn about the work that you're doing with the organization Respond Against Violence. Absolutely. So I left the DA's office about three years ago. And my focus very much shifted to, instead of dealing with individual cases, which I had done for years, shifting to how could could we respond differently as a system? And so often prosecutors will have a case here, have a case there. They might win, they might lose, they may or may not learn a lesson, and then they move on to the next case. My focus, especially with strangulation and the success we had with implementing protocols and training and educating and being successful in prosecuting these cases and hopefully preventing future crimes. And the success in that really led me to want to focus on how can we respond better? I always say that everything, almost, almost everything I ever learned, I learned from an advocate who is a translator between me and a survivor. And I realized that as practitioners, we don't get a lot of training in things like trauma or understanding victim behavior. And so we misunderstand how to be successful in these cases. So what the goal of Respond is, it's a nonprofit that I started last year. It's to transform how communities respond to violence and trauma, hopefully by forming alliances and enhancing policies and ultimately creating sustainable change. How can people learn more about strangulation or get involved in creating awareness about the the problem of strangulation? So one of the things they can do is follow Respond Against Violence on social media. They can look for the web series that we'll be doing at the Conference on Crimes Against Women called the Strangulation Series. There's a lot of great articles that I'll share on our social media. They can also go to respondagainstviolence.org where we share information as well as stories by survivors in our project called Better Together. So I'd encourage people to go to our website, follow us on social media, and then consider signing on for the five-part web series that the Conference on Crimes Against Women is offering this year. Oh, perfect. Okay, lightning round, we're wrapping up. What's one word or term (laughs) that you wish everyone would stop using or that you wish we could incorporate into our vocabulary regarding strangulation and the victims? Well, stop using would be the phrase, this is how we've always done it. I hear that all the time. And my response is always, well, it's not working that well. So uh, shifting how we think about change and realizing we're responsible for this next generation 
in terms of what to start using is just yes. You know, I'd love to hear not reasons why we can't do something, but acceptance of willingness to try different things. So more and more people just taking responsibility and saying yes. Hear, hear. What inspires you? You know, survival inspires me. Both survivors themselves obviously inspire me, but almost more so is seeing what people can live through and come out on the other end. After you've experienced a crime or trauma or this particular type of just heinous abuse, uh, it's difficult for survivors to have a voice in those circumstances and and they need a voice. So that internal desire to help give them that voice, whether that's in the form of a conviction or using their story and training to inspire police officers, it's having these conversations like you and I are having and telling that story of survivalship and survivors and what people can overcome. It's always been amazing to me to see families who have lost a loved one, for instance, or families whose child has been abused, sit in a courtroom and not go absolutely insane against a perpetrator. And so watching that gives me hope that I can survive anything. I'm not a survivor of domestic violence or sexual assault. So it's watching their stories that allow me to remain inspired and to do better. Would you describe the work that you do as intense? Is that how you would describe it? <laughs> you think. <laughs> I, I, I'm, feeling, I'm feeling a little intense right now. Uh, what, then yeah. what, would, what would keep you from burnout? <laughs> well, I mean, yes, I live at a pretty constant level of intensity. And I think I have ever since I was a small child. And I don't know that I'm the best person to speak to burnout in particular, because I do tend to go nonstop. And no doubt I pay for that in different ways. But I I really am trying to focus on systems. One of the biggest challenges I would say in my career is when I'm handling those individual cases, that creates so much secondary trauma because you're living that with that victim. And then you multiply that by having thousands of cases. That's really overwhelming. But what I notice is that every time I want to give up, inevitably something will happen and I'll get a fresh breath. So I do try to take a few deep breaths a day. Don't do the whole 10 minute (laughs) meditation. But once in a while, I will just stop and take one deep breath. I snuggle with my kids. I make jewelry. I uh, design beautiful homes with my husband. I drink wine, laugh with girlfriends. Sometimes I lose it. I swear too much. Uh, you know, then I try to get a good night's sleep and wake up and do it again. We're glad that you do. Kelsey, thank you so much for being with us today. Absolutely. Thank you for what you're doing. I'm excited to hear the um, all the different podcasts. If you want to hear more from Kelsey and the topic of strangulation, visit conferencecall.org. That's conferencecaw.org. And check out our web series on strangulation. Strangulation tends to make headlines and capture public attention in the most extreme cases, often those involving serial killers who commit outrageous acts that are transformed into sensational news stories. However, those extreme circumstances are not the only instances where strangulation occurs. It can frequently be found in cases of domestic violence, rape, and other violent crimes, and most notably in crimes against women. According to the National Domestic Violence Hotline, which lists more than 20 symptoms resulting from strangulation, it's possible to experience strangulation and show no symptoms at first, but die weeks later because of brain damage due to lack of oxygen and other internal injuries. 
Strangulation is a significant predictor for future lethal violence. If your partner has strangled you in the past, your risk of being killed by them is 10 times higher. Strangulation is one of the most lethal forms of domestic violence. Unconsciousness may occur within seconds and death within minutes. With new protocols like the asphyxiation assessment developed by Kelsey McKay, investigators now have more definitive tools to identify, investigate, and prosecute cases of strangulation. Education about both the impact of strangulation and its prevention is critical to reducing its incidence. As education initiatives advance, it is everyone's responsibility to support women who are victims of strangulation. It is critical that we believe her when she says she has been strangled. It might be the difference between life and death. To learn more about this topic and other issues impacting crimes against women, visit conferencecall.org. That's conferencecaw.org. And you can find us on social media at National CCAW. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, stay safe. Interested in learning more about the topics you've heard on this podcast? Listeners of the podcast on crimes against women can receive $25 off of registration to the 34-part web series beginning on June 2nd. Visit www.conferencecaw.org register and enter podcast 25, that's podcast 25 at checkout.